Hi, everyone. It's Mind Rolling. I'm back, Raghu, and I'm back with Noah Marcus, my, um, my new partner on some of these podcasts, Noah. And we are welcoming a very old friend, Joseph Goldstein. Joseph, welcome to Mind Rolling. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, so uh, some of this is, and actually Noah just explained this to, to Joseph, is uh, Noah has been helping us out with the podcast network and he's been doing a lot of the show notes and he's been getting a lot of Joseph's podcast. And as a result, uh, started to be, what you, you said, I'm a fan now. It's like Joseph has a fan club now. Um, it could be a student, I think would be a, a, a better term. And so I thought it'd be great if Noah would just uh, query uh, Joseph based on next generation kind of, um, is that is that fair to say? I mean, you're going to have uh, different stuff to talk to Joseph about than I know. Yeah, I, I will. But uh, to, to pin the whole generation on me is a little, uh, <laughs> a little okay. too much, okay? All but, right, uh, we won't do that. We my won't. own unique perspective here. Right, okay. Shoot, uh, you go. So shoot, I go. All right. Well, let's um, maybe can we start with with Ram Dass and uh, mm. and his passing? And uh, I don't know. I'd love to hear from you, Joseph. Uh, 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 any thoughts you have on that? And uh, any thoughts you have on you know those of us dealing with grief and you know how we can work through that? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Ram Dass and I go way way back. <laughs> you know, I met him first in 1970. Uh, in Bodh Gaya in India. I had been there for a few years already uh, practicing, and I never heard of Ramdas before he came. And he came with about a hundred of his devotees to my very nice, quiet, secluded <laughs> Burmese Vihara in Bodh Gaya, <laughs> where I was deep into my practice. <laughs> and then this uh, uh, festival came. <laughs> Mm. Uh, and over the time that he was there, we became we became quite friendly. Um, actually, at one point, we were sharing a uh, renovated buffalo shed, and they had made <laughs> three three stalls into three little rooms. And I was in one, and Ramdas was in the one next to me. Uh, and I was there trying to just keep my meditation going. And people would be coming to visit Ramdas a lot and talking. And I'd be kind of banging on the wall, hey there. <laughs> really? <laughs> so it was. Uh, That's an uh, image. <laughs> it was great. And then in the years since then, um, and especially in the early years, uh, he was a tremendous help as we first came back to this country and started teaching. I mean, I had no idea when I left India what I was going to do or anything. I just came back. Uh, basically, I'd spent all of my 20s in Asia. You know, and so then get back to the States when I was 30, you know, no job, no profession. I had no idea what to do. Uh, and Ramdas was really helpful in um, first encouraging me to teach and, you know, um, arranging for me to teach at Naropa in part of his big class. And that's really what set the whole movement um, rolling along. You know, for those who may not know that, first summer at Naropa in 1974. It was kind of like a Buddhist Woodstock. You know, it was the mm-hmm. first time thousands of people, I think there were two or 3,000 people who came who were interested in Eastern understanding and wisdom. 
And so Ramdas was there in Central Rinpoche, and they were kind of dividing, you know, the uh, the session. And I was teaching meditation as a part of Ramdas's course, which was in the Bhagavad Gita. So I had a chance to meet with lots of people because I was part of that, you know, his big course. Uh, and it was really out of that that people meditated there, said, you know, can we arrange a course someplace? And so it was very grassroots. It was a very uh, grassroots just from one place to another, people who were interested, you know, in meditating. And then over the years, you know, once we got established and started the center here in Barry, uh, Ramdas actually came and visited here, sat here uh, some. And over the years, we've had just so many, you know, interactions and part of different uh, meetings or groups or um, so it's been a long long history uh, you know as you know Rocco I was out there at, not this last December but the December before at the Maui yeah. and yeah, it I, was wonderful being there then with Ramos I would love that and there was a whole uh, it was really a chance to spend some significant amount of time with him and um, it was just incredibly inspiring, <laughs> given what he was dealing with with his body, which was just so uh, huge. You know, and yet the spirit with which he lived in it was amazing and inspirational. And so really when he passed, I felt the relief for him. You know, I, it was not a question of grief at all. It was really, yeah, he did his work, you know, and kind of a blessing to leave the body and move on because it was such a source of suffering uh, mm. but the way he held it was was tremendously inspiring um so if you like i could say a few words about grief mm. because there's a very specific teaching that i found really helpful but but um yeah some people may relate to this and some not because this is a very tender area you know when there's a big loss and people are in grief it's just very tender you know and people relate to that in a lot of different ways some people are interested in investigating really that experience and some people not and that's fine you know it's just people are at different places in that process but for those who might be interested in really exploring what that experience is like, uh, I would really suggest beginning to separate out the experience of loss from the experience of grief. Because for most people, these two are conflated, you know, and it almost becomes the same thing. But when we look carefully, they're not the same thing at all. And I was first tuned into this uh, in reading some of the stories from the Buddhist time. And one of the stories was when his chief disciples died, Moggallana and Sariputta. So they were his chief disciples. They died before the Buddha. And he commented about of the assembly of followers, you know, nuns and monks and lay people, now seemed empty. 
because of the loss of these two great beings. He said it's like the the great branches of a huge tree. If two of the uh, two of those great branches fall off, that that's what it felt like. And then he went on to say, but. Isn't it remarkable that even in the experience of this loss, the Tathagata, which is how he refers to himself, does not experience grief? So that was interesting to me. And then in the beginning of the Satipatthana discourse, which is that discourse on mindfulness, the very opening paragraph says the development of mindfulness is the way to overcome grief, lamentation, sorrow. So when I put all this together, it was really interesting for me because clearly the Buddha experienced the loss in the way he talked about it, but he was not grieving the loss. And so then when I began to look in myself, I really began to see that in some way grief is the manifestation of the non-acceptance of the feeling of loss, which is painful. You know, it's it's a painful feeling. So it's not surprising that people have a hard time accepting that, just as we have a hard time accepting pain in our body. Our first response is not, oh, good, let me feel it. You know, we want to get rid of it. But with the practice, oh, no, there's another way. You know, and so I think we could understand grief as the process of coming to the acceptance of loss, that that is the grieving process. But I think most or many people are not really seeing the possibility of going directly to the experience of loss with an attitude of acceptance that we don't have to wait it out until finally we accept it. If we realize that really the grief is the non-acceptance of the loss, then can we just approach it very directly, you know, kind of in the footsteps of the Buddha? And, and we may not be as quick as he was. He may uh, not. Uh, but, but we can, I think, often be quicker in that process of acceptance than we think is possible. Because I think many people in the experience of loss just assume, well, this is going to take a year or two or however long to work through this. But if we actually direct the awareness and the mindfulness from the beginning, oh, this loss, this emptiness, this the assembly now feels empty, you know, our family now feels empty, or And if we can go directly to that experience, which is not pleasant, it's not a pleasant feeling, but it is possible through our meditation practice to actually be accepting of it, just as we can be accepting of other painful things that come up. Uh, So I think it's a very interesting time. And again, it's only if people, you know, have a particular interest in doing this. And I'm not suggesting that this will necessarily be the right way for everybody. It just depends on, on one's own interest in this investigation. Is, 
is this acceptance when we talk about acceptance hmm. how th there has to be a reference around attachment right so are we accepting that attachment is that part of this joseph yes uh, uh, well i think it, i think that our degree of acceptance or non-acceptance is related to the strength of the attachment. <laughs> the stronger the attachment, the harder it's going to be to come to the acceptance. And the, the weaker the attachment, the easier. But particularly when the attachment is strong, if we can go directly to the experience of loss and get okay with it, it's almost like we're, we're sliding in underneath the attachment. And that very acceptance of the loss is going to weaken the attachment and the clinging. Mm -hmm. Because we've accepted the experience of someone no longer being there. You know, so it, it's really a way of... Uh, it's a way of great freedom and ease if we can work through this. And, you know, for most people, it probably will take a little time. It's not like the first time we said, oh, let me open to the loss. And, okay, <laughs> no more attachment. But I don't think it has to stretch out as long as it often does, if we know how to investigate it. You want to take a, I have something else, but Noah, you, you go. Uh, I just want to back up real quick uh, just because you told the Naropa story and I was curious because I, I know uh, KK was there huh. during Naropa right were you born yeah. yet <laughs> no not me his brother uh, his brother was born then that's why yeah. he wasn't at Naropa uh, but yeah I was wondering uh, if, if you had any interactions with with KK at all Ram Dass's uh, no, Indian no. brother there oh okay no. <laughs> um, what did you have a oh yeah mine was uh, just around just continuing in this mm -hmm. vein joseph i th so uh, when we t i got the acceptance mm -hmm. i liked the idea of kind of just slipping under the attachment and uh but at the same time isn't this acceptance uh there has to be some developed through meditative practice or otherwise bhakti however it is that impermanence is not to be run away from is that not part of what we're talking about here when we talk about acceptance yeah if, I, if i'm understanding what you're saying correctly <clears throat> it seems to me that that wisdom aspect there is a wisdom aspect to the acceptance of the experience of loss you know and so somebody close to us dies and there is that kind of void or emptiness, and it's not, it's not a pleasant feeling. And so one of the ways we can come to an acceptance of it is the reflection that everything that's born will die. <laughs> you know, that this is just part of nature. It's really not, in many situations, not, I have to qualify this a little bit, I was going to say, Death is not tragic yeah. because it's really nature. It's just now there are certain kinds of deaths or 
premature deaths or whatever, that that we have a flavor of the tragedy of it, you know. And so that's another whole that's another whole story. Yeah. But but just when people you know die at the end of a natural lifespan, um, to reflect on yes, this this is this is part of the natural process, the flow of impermanence and. There's, there's a wonderful reflection in the Buddhist teachings. Uh, I love this one. <laughs> so the, the main part of the reflection will be very familiar to you. And, and the Buddha is suggesting that we f- reflect on this daily. You know, and so that whatever has the nature to age will age. Whatever has the nature to get sick will get sick. Whoever has the whatever has the nature to die will die. So this is just a statement of facts, you know. But then there's a tagline, and this is the this is the kicker. And I am not exempt. Mm. Because even though on an intellectual level we know that those reflections are true, yeah, everybody gets older and gets sick and dies. But somehow, and I see it in myself. There's some little place, yeah, that's true for everybody else. <laughs> and I can say, you know, I'm just getting over a cold, so you may hear me cough a few times. And kind of deep inside, why did this happen to me? <laughs> yeah, I, aren't I exempt from this? <laughs> you know, and so I love reflecting on each of those aging, sickness, death, mm-hmm. and I am not And it's powerful, because it just reminds us that we're all part of this great, this great story. Mm. Yeah, I know. Um, I, I just remember I was having a conversation with you, Raghu, not too long ago, where I was going, God, I, I'm almost 40, but I still feel like I'm, you know, in college or whatever. And you said, yeah, I feel exactly the same way, except I'm <laughs> right. a few years whatever, older. <laughs> whatever your age is. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's yeah. uh, so stuck in our identity somehow. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And it can even be with small things. I remember, you know, sometimes even on retreat, when this should be really <laughs> front and center, I can be walking and maybe, you know, I get a little pain in my knee or back. And my first reaction is, well, why did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) So it's the, you know, our our, our denial of these such basic truths goes deep, which is why the Buddha suggested a daily reflection on it. You know, we, we need to recondition our minds in this way. So we're open to it. When, when I was talking about impermanence before as being part of, as, as you say, this, this certainly wisdom is part of acceptance. Yeah. Um, but here, this, this happened to me. I was talking to a friend, to Duncan actually, uh, the other day, and I was saying, you know, with this loss, so there's an expression of grief, emotional expression happens and recognizing it and pretty much going along the path that you have suggested. And then it's, it's uh, this remembrance of this person leaving and the feeling of loss. Suddenly there's a thought, oh, I'm hungry. 
<laughs> exactly. Make a sandwich. Exactly. Okay, start walking <laughs> to make a sandwich. And as soon as that happens, everything goes away, whatever, that loss, yeah, yeah, yeah. everything gone. Yeah. And then I, I sit down, I made the sandwich, and I'm, you know, I'm concentrating on making the sandwich. And then as soon as I bring it up to eat it, uh, there's a, a feeling goes through me. How ephemeral is this? You know, it, I mean, it's how ephemeral is the sandwich or is life? No, well, oh, the oh. sandwich. No, how ephemeral is this, this, uh, this feeling of loss? Right, right, right. Okay. This, yeah. the, the feeling, yeah, yeah. the yeah. darkness. Yeah. How yeah. ephemeral is that? Yeah. yeah. And just as our thoughts. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. Also, just one thought that came to me as you were speaking, another dimension, which will vary in different situations, but particularly with Ramdas, at least this is, this is from my perspective, mm. um, it would be interesting to see if there's a difference in how you feel if you're thinking about yourself or you're thinking about Ramdas. Because when I was thinking about Ramdas, I was glad for him. You know, kind of knowing the burden that he was carrying with the condition of his body, to me, kind of the release into whatever it is. But almost assuredly, he's in a great space <laughs> and a much freer one in terms of the body than he was here. So. I actually felt happy for him. Yeah. And I think the loss is when we think of ourselves and what we may be missing. Mm. So that's Good another point. <laughs> that's another way of kind of yes. just okay, can we redirect and the same love that we may have had for him when he was alive, that doesn't diminish. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, that's another aspect of this that would be worth looking at. Oh, you just hit it on the head for me, and now I'm feeling kind of selfish. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy for him, but I'm sad for me. Yeah, well, uh, well, at least that, that's, that's clear. Yeah. You're not confusing it. Yeah, I mean, we can't, we can't control <clears throat> what feelings come up. I mean, they're going to come depending on our conditioning and our understanding and whatever. But as I said in the beginning, we often confuse things or conflate things we're not seeing clearly what's what. So even if, yeah, there's sadness when you think of yourself, there's happiness when you think around us, that seems fine. As long as we're clear, oh, this is this and this is that, you know, and then we don't get entangled. Hmm. Right. I, I have to admit something that just takes this into a whole other realm, okay? Talk about self-interest. KK, I, I know it did, ask if you if you really knew him and you didn't um but i, I know of him of course yeah of course yeah no of course but uh, he was incredible yeah uh but my why you haven't seen me in barry in some time is because i'm in taking my retreats and going to kenchi where we were with neem karoli mm -hmm. with Ramos, mm -hmm. kd and all of us and part of that is was hanging out with uh, with kk so and then we've been working together uh, we worked on a book together. We worked on a movie, actually, uh, that uh, you have to see the light of day. And so there was a lot of closeness. And before, 
he was really feeling bad after uh, talk about bereft. He didn't want to live. I mean, he was so identified with Ramdas, uh, extraordinarily so. Mm -hmm. From the day that Ramdas came to India, met Neem Karoli Baba, and he was the translator. Mm -hmm. So uh, we talked, and so and then maybe a week before he left, I, I did talk to him. I said, "Oh, he said I really want to transmit my relationship with Ramdas," and I said perfect for the movie we'll, i'll get a camera person we'll come over and plan the whole thing out um and of course he left before i could call him to say it's all fixed and and i had he had <laughs> said i really want to do this so i said good you know so you stay together you look great now you keep yourself to get you know stay in their team it kind of a thing it's so naive um and then since he's left and i see it this is sick i see a picture of him I'm angry. Shit, oh. you left? You <laughs> left me in the middle of this? Are you... And Rob, how could you just be thinking of yourself? <laughs> exactly. Mm. So, there's a, that just reminds me of a little kind of meditative... Uh, it could be a little bit of meditative humor if one sees it in the right way <laughs> but it's something i've noticed in myself and, and very common among people on retreat but I, just relating my own experience mm. if i'm on retreat you know with others not teaching but being on it myself mm. and i'll notice you know maybe i'm in the dining room for a meal or something and i'll notice somebody who just seems completely unmindful you know, just kind of wandering around. It's just obvious they're not, they're not being aware. And I'll watch my mind. Boy, that person's not being mindful. Meanwhile, myself not being, completely being unmindful of that very thought in my mind. <laughs> I'm getting caught up in, you know, in that judgment. <laughs> so it's not uncommon that uh, we get caught by our, own, by our own reactivity. Yeah. That's the beauty of Ramdas, Joseph. A sense of humor about you. Oh. Don't be so serious about yeah. you. You know, oh. and it's okay. We're human. You know, from the very second I yes. first heard yes. him talk, it was, oh God, it's okay. I can be yeah. a gaggy. <laughs> no. Now, sense of humor is especially about one's own mind. Mm. It is so helpful. <laughs> one, one meditator once came into an interview and his his report about his practice and understanding was just one line. You realize that the mind has no pride. <laughs> It'll do anything and it does do everything. So mm. can we hold it lightly? Yeah, and with humor. Mm. It's the big help. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Noah. What what do we do if we feel like the mind does have pride? Is that just bad, bad identification going on there? Yeah, and, and one can smile at that. Yeah. Okay. You, where, where you see that and you see that, it's, it's all conditioning. Yeah. You know, and so that conditioning is arising. And, and if we can be mindful of it, we can hold that lightly okay. and, and actually smile at it. Oh, look at that. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, actually, that leads perfectly into this other question I had. And this, this actually comes from the notes I took at that uh, retreat in Maui that you were, you were uh -huh. at a couple of years ago. Yeah. You gave this fantastic talk about mindfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know if I'm quoting you exactly here. Or it's just my notes. I had something along the lines of mindfulness reveals the pattern of our conditioning. Mm -hmm. uh, 
how how do how can we use identifying that pattern to sort of help us break the attachments that we have with ego with self with all of that yeah well uh basically everything that's arising moment to moment is arising out of conditions so there's nothing which is un in our in our regular experience unconditioned uh -huh. you know it's like everything's arising out of causes but i think the ones to particularly um, pay attention to is when we begin to see repetitive patterns because that's when that's when the conditioning has really uh, created a groove in our minds you know it's maybe in more modern terminology we could say those neural pathways have been uh, well uh, no, i don't know what the right word is well traveled uh and so when we, when we begin to recognize, you know, which are the most predominant, deeply habituated patterns, so then it's, then it's really a question and of trying to uh, become mindful of them quicker. Because the ones that are deeply habituated, because of that, are generally very seductive. You know, because they've just this deep habit, we have the habit of just buying into them and believing them and acting them out. And what I found in myself is, particularly with ones that are strong patterns, if I don't catch it right in the beginning, it may take me down, you know, it's like hopping on the train and then sometime later <laughs> we get off. Um, and it could be the habit of of judgment, it could be the habit of anger, it could be the habit of greed. I mean, it's, you know, the basics. Yeah. Uh, but if we can, if we can practice, and this is a practice, it's and, and it will take practice. But to actually keep our radar out for the first thought mm. of whatever it is, you know, whether it's a reactive judgment or whatever. Uh, or, or it could be a thought that triggers a strong emotion. Just, I'll, I'll, I'll just mention a story that but abbreviated a lot because it's a long story. Uh, but this goes back many years, like 15, 20 years. And I was on a self-retreat and I had done something, um, basically in the middle of the retreat, I was having some trouble with my back went for a chiropractic adjustment, which I had had many, many, so it was nothing unusual. But for some reason, I don't know if it's because my energy system was so open to the retreat, I don't know why, but this very ordinary adjustment was traumatic to my body. It's really traumatic, I mean, my body froze. This lasted three years. So work, working with that pain and difficulty, but while I was still on retreat, so I went back after that, I, very difficult. I mean, painful, it was terrible. It was probably the most difficult retreat of my whole career. But it was so interesting. The thought that kept coming up in my mind was just one thought, which was, how could I have been so stupid to leave the retreat and go for this adjustment? 
I was basically okay. There was, a, there was some discomfort, but I was basically okay. How could I have been so stupid? And that, because I was in such a bad way, that thought was so seductive to me that I would just play that out then for the next half hour, you know, berating myself and self-judgment and, and all of it. And this went on like for a couple of weeks of that thought catching me. And finally I realized, okay, I need to be hyper vigilant for the arising of that thought because that was the thought that was leading me, you know, taking me on this whole ride. And so then I, I kind of set the radar out, you know, in my mind. So even when the first few words of the thought, how can I? <laughs> it's like, so then I developed this kind of technique of, you know, maybe at an amusement park, you know, we just shoot at a balloon or a dock or something. <laughs> Pop. You know? So that's what I would do with these thoughts. I'd just knock it out of the sky. Knock it out. So it became kind of a game. But it was amazing how freeing that was. That it was just that thought pattern triggering all the emotions, which if I wasn't on top of, would just take me down this long, long suffering journey. So I can't remember now how we got started on this. <laughs> but, but, but with strong, seductive emotions, catching the initiating move movement in the mind can be hugely helpful well, i like what you said uh, i like the reference to radar keeping yeah. the radar up yeah. or just the, the, this is a major thing for everyone yeah that there's something that comes along that that really has that gigantic tidal pull yes we say uh okay so what are we talking about how do we keep that radar up uh, what, what are we talking about practice wise Okay. Or, or just moment, moment you know. Yeah. Moment, well, moment. well this, this is an interesting question because I'll tie it into this, but also to practice in general. And it, it's something that, this is a talk I've been working on just now, so oh, yeah. it's a timely question. Um, basically, setting the radar has to do with having a strong intentionality. So, for example, when I would sit down, I would actually verbalize in my mind, keep an eye out, just really? keep a watch out for this. And, and having that strong intentionality. And that became one of the conditions for picking them up quicker. And if I saw that I was slipping into it again, I would reset the intention. So this also applies to our very ordinary meditation. And it has to do really with right effort. And so I was just playing with this experience of sitting and just being with the breath. You know, so it's very simple, uncomplicated. And in watching what happens both in my own practice at times and, you know, with many, many, many meditators, we, we can go into a sitting with an intention, yeah, I'm going to be with my breath for this time or whatever, whatever our object may be. But then we get into this state, which I think we've talked about before, what I call more or less mindful. You know, where we're kind of on the breath, but at the same time, the mind is thinking away. So it's kind of two parallels, two parallel things going on. 
And I realized that we can just dial up, we can turn that intentionality dial up just a little. It doesn't take much. It's a very subtle movement at the beginning of each breath. And it need not even be verbalized. It it could be, but it would also be a non-verbal setting the intention for the mind to stay completely steady on the breath, not the more or less mindful. But okay, I'm going to really be here for just a breath because we really can't do more. That's about our capacity. (laughs) But that's enough because if we do it for each breath, two things are going to happen. One is it will make us much more aware of when we slip into more or less mindful, you know, and and we have these parallel thoughts going on. That'll become more evident to us quicker because we set the intention. And with a few cycles, having set the intention, what I've noticed is that the mind actually within that very short time of a few breaths even, the concentration level actually deepens because of that right effort or that right intention. Okay, I'm going to really be close and steady for this very short period of time. So one way to practice this, and maybe some of the people listening to the podcast, I first began to pay attention just to this intentionality dial, uh, doing a mantra. You know, and so I don't know, you know, who of you do mantra meditations, but I was doing this Tibetan mantra, the Vajrasattva mantra. It's a hundred syllable mantra. So I was doing it and I've done it enough. So it's kind of going on by itself and I'm doing it out loud, just, you know, softly. And what I realized is just what I described, that the mantra can be going and I can be thinking at the same time. <laughs> Having a good time. It's yeah. Same time. <laughs> But then when I saw that, so then I started setting this intention at the beginning. So the hundred syllable mantra, I don't know, it takes a minute or two minutes. I don't know how long it takes, but it's some short period of time. I just turned that intentionality dial up a little bit when I saw that the mind was drifting off it. Okay, be with every syllable. Just really be there for every syllable. And it was amazing, you know, And the first time I did it, maybe the mind would go off it a little less. Within a few cycles of mantra, I found that the mind actually could stay steady, mostly, throughout it. So this was really interesting to me because it wasn't about 20 years of practice and maybe I'll get there someday. It was about setting the intention for a short period of time now that actually effectively deepens the concentration quickly but it takes that it takes that very subtle effort it's and i want to emphasize this because often people mess things up by making too much effort mm. okay i'm gonna hold on to this mantra <laughs> you know like you're holding on to a bucking bronco or something it's it's the most subtle intentional okay just just a little bit more to stay with it. So I would suggest, you know, for you or anybody listening, 
it would be well worth experimenting this, whether it's with a mantra or with the breath or with anything else. Um, the key is having the duration short enough that's within our capacity. Because if we say, okay, I'm going to be with my breath for the next half hour, that's, <laughs> that doesn't do much good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Intention, though. Right effort is yeah. what we're talking. And uh, you and I talked about this a long time ago in a podcast, I believe. Uh, and it is tricky to uh, summon up will, effort, however you want to call it, uh, that is so identified with, um, with being a doer that this spaciousness that you're trying to create and to build this real effort and, in, and as you say, intention, is, that's very hard when it has okay. that, when it identifies in that yeah. way. Well, I think that's, that's why I kind of like the shift of language from effort to intentionality, because effort has so many connotations for us, and it's so easy to over-effort or efforting or, yeah, and then it just throws everything out of balance. For me, anyway, and maybe people would find their own word to describe it, but for me, intentionality is a much softer a movement of the mind and that it's possible to kind of have that intentionality without the danger of what you're describing of getting so ego involved in the effort yeah yeah and, and as i say just to reiterate the move the quality of just turning up the dial a little bit is really subtle. It doesn't take much. That, that's what the big discovery was, that it doesn't take gritting one's teeth. And it's just setting the intention and just, just giving it a little more energy than we had, mm. but not much. And that's, that would be the interesting exploration for people, mm. for them to find that dial in the mind and then just to learn how to adjusted microscopically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. You know, it's, it, it's just really interesting to do. Mm. Um, just as a, it's not really a comparison or anything, but I, I think uh, out of the bhakti tradition, this could, this could be similar. See what you think. And it came because uh, I was hanging out uh, with a yogi who's done a lot, a lot of austerities and tapasya is accomplished. And so in his, uh, he, he brought us a little group of us to a place that he had done some of these austerities where it was a bit of a jungly kind of place. And he said, so I just came here and I sat down and, uh, and I just sat for six months, he said, and I, and I'm looking around wild animals. It was a monkey troop that was right next, you know, it was like 30 monkeys, Langours, right? They're big ones right next yeah. to it, you know, and where food, where's that coming from? You know, where's, uh, you know, where's the shelter when it, the weather, um, you know, all of the things, of course, the tourists <laughs> like me would think about, so to speak. Well, I mean, not only you, I think uh, yeah, those would know. be the common thoughts. <laughs> yeah, right. Those would be common thoughts. So I said to him, where did you, how did you do this? How did you manage to, to, to be able to 
not be shaken by, by this and sit there for six months. You know what he said? He said in, in broken English, I have God's will. Hmm. He said God's will. Hmm. So, and he's in the bhakti tradition. So he just aligned himself yeah. Yeah. with that, which is uh, beyond the mind and ego right, right. And, and, you know, inside of himself, which is connected to Ram, which is his thing. And, that intention was more naturally arising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? But I, I, it's a beautiful story, and it points to the power of it. Mm. But I think it's also important to realize that our freedom really does not depend on the particular circumstances we're in. Because if it does, it wouldn't be freedom. And so for him and what, you know, he probably was this sadhu for 500 lifetimes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe it just felt completely natural for him to do that. Whereas yeah. for us, what? <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, the message is, I think, not that we're supposed to do it like that, but rather to take the energy which he was using and then to apply that to whatever our particular circumstances are. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it well, it may it was inspiring to me. Yeah, okay. I reflected in, on on in myself and understood, you know, any alignment with I think I'm going to do anything is going mm-hmm. to be problematic. Right, and it it just uh, switched that uh, it just switched that perspective. Right. So that alone was inspiring to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I um, mean, it's, it's that quality of just surrendering. Yeah, to Ram, to the Dharma, to yeah, yeah, exactly. And letting it unfold. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is then we have to talk about courage when we talk about that. That's a mm-hmm. whole other subject. But I want to leave since we don't have much time. Noah. Uh, yeah, let me yeah. let me get my last selfish question in here. Okay. Oh, wow, good, good. Uh, I'm going to uh, change the topic here a little bit, although uh, who knows? Uh, so yeah, I want to. I I deal with a lot of anxiety, and I wanted to talk to you about that real quick and see if you had any. Uh, any specific practice or meditation that might help with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, a few things. Um, kind of the ba- the foundation, I think, would be learning to get okay with the feeling of anxiety. Mm. And it's not, that's a practice because it's very unpleasant. You know, and I know this. So for me, it wasn't so much anxiety, but I've talked a lot over the years of how I work with fear, and so it's analogous because it's also a very unpleasant emotion. You know, and it took me a long time. It, it would come up a lot, and not about any particular thing. It was just almost like free floating, free floating fear, or it could be free floating anxiety. Not about anything in particular. It's just rising. And what was interesting to me is it took me so long to realize that even though I knew it was there and I thought I was being mindful of it, I was not because I was seeing it through the filter of wanting to get rid of it. And the very wanting to get rid of it was feeding it. Mm. And it took me a long time to see that. You know? And finally, since so after years of working with this 
something I was on retreat at, at IMS myself and I was doing walking meditation and the fear was coming up and something shifted and the shift was reflected in the statement in my mind if this is here for the rest of my life it's okay and that was the first moment that I genuinely accepted it the all those years of practice I thought I was being mindful and accepting, but I wasn't. I wanted, I wanted it to leave because it was so unpleasant. So it's okay became my mantra. You know, when unpleasant, particularly emotions, oh, it's okay, just let me feel it. And so an image which might help people find that space within themselves. So just for you to imagine how you would be if you were with a child who is experiencing a lot of anxiety, how would you be relating? You probably would not be saying, oh, that's terrible, you shouldn't be feeling that. Or, oh yeah, you really should be feeling it, this is, you know. No, you would probably just be there in a loving, supportive way, knowing as the adult mind that it's a passing emotion, that this is the feeling now, and you know, in the child's life, it's going to pass. So it's almost like we know, we know internally how to be with these difficult emotions when it's a child and we're relating. But somehow we don't, we don't understand that we need to apply that same relationship to ourselves when we're going through this. So that would be the first to really change your attitude towards the anxiety. It's okay. It's okay, just... Relax into the body, mind, and just feel it. And it's going to be unpleasant. It's not that that makes it pleasant, but it's just like feeling a pain in the back. But in you know, in meditation, we learn, okay, it's painful, but it's okay. So that, that's the ground. And I, that's the most significant shift, I think. What was amazing is when I did that in that moment, the whole mass of fear washed through. It was amazing because it really felt caught to wash through. And it's not that fear never arises, it does. But since then, the relationship to it has changed. You know, and now in a okay, it's okay. It's okay, just feel it. And so I'm, I'm not reinforcing it through my aversion to it. That's a key point, you know, and so you really have to watch how the mind is relating. Just two other quick things. Um, basically, I think concentration and the deepening of concentration really helps with afflictive emotions. You know, because as the mind gets more concentrated, they really don't arise. The mind gets unified in a certain way. Uh, and at first, that may just be a fleeting experience of concentration. But as we practice and our base, the base level of concentration in our minds over years of practice uh, gets stronger. You know, when I think back to my early years in Bulgaria, I had zero concentration. I, mean, I just thought all the time and enjoyed it. <laughs> Enjoy. So, so I know that concentration to some extent and a reasonable extent actually can be developed. So that has a big impact on our emotional life. 
then just the last thing, it might be interesting to see the effect of doing the metta loving kindness meditation at those times you're feeling anxiety because similar to, to what we're talking about, the grief and loss, when we think of ourselves, it's painful. When we think of Ramdas, we can feel happy for him. So when we're feeling, when our attention is all directed to my anxiety, my, 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 so it can get very heavy. When we're doing metta meditation and just sending a loving energy outward, it can really lighten the heart. Uh, so there are these three aspects that I, I would explore. Uh, but the first one is, is, the, is really the wisdom piece with regard to it. That's, that's great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, I'll be interested in a report. Yeah. Well, How we, you we might have to do this again someday. I, I have a lot more questions for you. So, uh, yeah, but I'm particularly interested in the anxiety. And how, what, okay. if, you, if you really actually start to practice with it in this way. So I'm okay. not letting you off the hook here just with this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, no I, I need to start doing this. So, uh, thank you. You yeah. are on the hook. We're gonna, yeah, we're gonna expect uh, as <laughs> such, and maybe uh, you. What what we should do is uh, a free trip to IMS. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's the, uh... yeah, both father and son probably. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, thank you so much, Joseph. This oh, you're very welcome. And by the way, there, uh, Noah, you should find this stuff because there'll be show notes, and Noah's going to do those show notes and everything. And we lead people, of course. Uh, Joseph's mindfulness books book will have to be a uh, part of uh, leading everyone to the promised land. But yeah. uh, Joseph, y when you did at the retreat in 2018 mm. with, with the Sh both uh, Sharon and uh, mm. Jack, and and uh, I you did that. It's a 75, it's like an hour and 15 minute right, right. encapsulation of mindfulness, right? Because yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, Joseph, because you said, what, what should I talk about? Well, you talk about mindfulness, just boil that book down. It's only six, 700 pages. <laughs> What's the problem? Anyhow, you did so. And uh, it is extraordinary. I, I, and this wasn't for me to get out to the constituency of, of Love, Serve, Remember, but it was people that, like Noah, would have said mm -hmm. to me, you know, I'm having this trouble dealing with anxiety and fear, whatever it may be. I said to him, I have the solution. It's called, it's from Joseph Goldstein and I've named it 75 minutes to enlightenment. Okay? <laughs> I actually put that on the file. Okay. Next. I'm going to listen. <laughs> <laughs> and I send it out. Anyhow, Noah, find that thing from, you know, our people. I, I know exactly and what let, you're talking about. Oh, okay, great. Cause that has to be there as well as there's a, and Joseph, when you talked about being with Ramdas at the at that retreat a year ago, yeah. um, but you were there earlier, I think maybe the summer before, two summers before that, I can't remember exactly. Yeah. And you did this, uh, you know, we did a thing in yeah, Ramdas's right. living room, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Noah, fi find that. That is so. Uh, I love that so much, Joseph. Yeah, that was beautiful. Because you hadn't seen him in a long time yeah, at yeah. that point, and, and we uh, have a really. I mean, we've we've had just such a playful relationship. Yeah. You know, yeah, so it was just fun to play together. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's so evident and so uh, yeah. inspiring. Uh, yeah. It's just wonderful. So those couple of things, know if you can find, because I'd love for people to be able to share that that with people. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. And everybody, this is uh, Raghu and Noah in Mind Rolling with uh, Joseph Goldstein. 
and you can go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and you can catch a bunch of other podcasts from Joseph, okay, because they are one after the other of these great Dharma talks that we've uh, assembled uh, from his catalog. So we shall see you next week. Namaste. Namaste.